CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. She was friends with everybody. She didn't realize who she was. Never did. Marilyn Monroe really had no confidence in herself. Psychologically, just as a personality, she really had no confidence because she was such an abused child. She really felt very vulnerable and she was always looking for protection. I could easily be alone. It doesn't bother me to be alone. Some people I know, they, they don't like to be alone. I don't mind it. Yes, I think there's two things in human beings that they, as I think there is in myself, that they want to be alone, but they also want to be together. Because I think I have also a gay side to me, also a sad side. Hello and welcome to part four of The Killing of Marilyn Monroe. I'm your host, Jackie Moran. In this episode, we're going to see how after dragging herself out of an abusive childhood and suffering the infamous Hollywood casting couch, Marilyn finally made it big. On a level nobody, even she, could have predicted. And we'll also discover how her extraordinary on-screen sex appeal crossed over into an increasingly scandalous private life. If I were your wife, I'd be very jealous of you. I'd be very, very jealous. I think you're just delicate. Marilyn had broken through in 1950 thanks to two movies, All About Eve and The Asphalt Jungle, in which she had small but memorable parts. The buzz she created from her performances in them led to her being cast in no fewer than 10 movies over the following two years and kept her profile high. Marilyn was relentless in her ambition. She took acting lessons with all the great teachers in Hollywood, and she was uh, formed friendships with the publicity agents and gave the best interview that anyone had ever given. She had talents that were quite extraordinary and sometimes unusual. In 1952, Daily Variety columnist Florabelle Muir named Marilyn the It Girl of the Year, and former silent movie legend turned gossip queen Hedda Hopper described her as the cheesecake queen turned box office smash. In February of that year, she was also named the best young box office personality by the Foreign Press Association of Hollywood. 
and Marilyn's reputation as the sexiest up-and-coming actress in Hollywood wasn't exactly harmed by the emergence of the nude photos she had posed for as a penniless model back in 1949. As Greg Schreiner, president of the Marilyn Monroe fan club, explains, Marilyn was also smart enough to turn what could have been a career-ending scandal into another facet of her growing legend. She did a nude calendar for Tom Kelly, which became incredibly famous eventually. And when they asked her what she was wearing during that session, she said, Chanel number five. And of course, they said, no, 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 what did you have on? And they said, well, the radio. To me, I don't know, there's something wonderfully clever and naive about all of that, which I think uh, shows that side of Marilyn very much. Marilyn made further headlines that year when she began a high-profile romance with New York Yankees legend and America's most famous sports star, Joe DiMaggio. DiMaggio biographer Jerome Sharon, author of Joe DiMaggio, The Long Vigil, details how the ball player and the showgirl came to meet. In 1952, Marilyn was a, was a starlet. She had appeared in All About Eve. But suddenly, these nude pictures she had taken a few years before surfaced. And not only that, she had declared herself an orphan, and suddenly her mother arrives at an insane asylum and says that Marilyn had not been taken care of her. So Sidney Skolsky, who was a West Coast columnist, and her consigliere, who had his own station at Schwab's drugstore on Sunset Boulevard, said, hey, we got to do something. So what they did, they arranged a date for her to go out with Joe DiMaggio. Now, he was the proletarian prince of America. This is 1952. He just retired in 51. The whole world loved him at that point. Marilyn thought she was going to meet a splashy sports figure, you know, with the slicked hair and the flashy sports jacket. And when he showed up at dinner, she found that he was quiet and sensitive, and that would always pique her interest. So the moment she went out with Joe DiMaggio, they were the royal couple of America. And she was in all the newspapers, and her career was revived. They really hit it off. I think that one of the things that really attracted her to him, aside from the fact that she was very physically attracted to him, and he was certainly very physically attracted to her, which always helps, but also that father thing. He was very protective of her. As we shall see, Joe DiMaggio was to be the first of several significant men in Marilyn's life and death, but he was not to be the most significant. Here's Danforth Prince, celebrity publisher and Monroe expert. DiMaggio was not part of the Hollywood community. He was an athlete. He was a sports star. He didn't go for any of the frou-frou and silly Hollywood stupidity that seemed to make the Hollywood industry run that was considered chic and fun and interesting and desirable. He was devoted to her in a way and never used her, never used her fame, never used her talent, wasn't interested in her money, loved her desperately to the end of his life. Joe probably would have been a rather conservative Italian husband, probably would have demanded that she take fewer pills. He might have done her good, but he might have killed that magical spirit of charisma. With her profile rising and public interest in her next move high, in 1953, Marilyn starred in three movies that remain classics today. And that finally lifted her above all the other pretty blonde wannabes in Hollywood. My name is Charles Casillo, and I'm an entertainment journalist. I think the first role that really 
solidified that she was a legend and a true star was a movie called Niagara. But she was playing a femme fatale and a seductress, and she wanted to leave her husband. She was having an affair, so she wanted to kill him. But the reason that I think, more so than the plot, that it solidified her star status is it was in color, and everything about Marilyn that we remember today was on display in that movie. The, the creamy white skin, the ruby red glossy lips, the tousled blonde hair, the beauty mark, the cleavage, all in breathtaking color. People were dumbfounded by her. They had never seen anything like her before because she was just so carnal and so sexual. People had never seen anything like it. Hot on the heels of Niagara came Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Released just six months after Niagara, it saw Marilyn turn in a show-stopping performance opposite Jane Russell. Many moments from the movie, including Marilyn's dazzling performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, remain iconic today. Square cut or pear shape These rocks don't lose their shape Diamonds are a girl's best friend Tiffany's Cartier It was amazing. It was kind of like Vivian Lee with Gone with the Wind or Marlon Brando with Streetcar Named Desire. Like You can't imagine anyone else playing those roles. I think that it was a time in Marilyn Monroe's history where the perfect actress for the perfect role and the perfect year just came together serendipitously. In a rare recently unearthed interview, Marilyn's Some Like It Hot co-star Jack Lemmon described just what she brought to the screen. What Marilyn had, I think, is she had a very good sense of of, of comedy. Mm. There's no question. She also created this character herself, of her. I mean, the voice all of this and that, that was, was her. It, she, she was not a dumbbell. Yeah. I think that what she did, most of us maybe use 80 or 85% of our talents in a, in a hot take, yeah. you know, yeah. or in a good evening in the theater. Yeah. I think Marilyn came close to using 100% mm-hmm. on the takes that were printed. She had a talent for this, a talent for that. She could sing a little, she could dance a little, yeah. she could this a little, she could whatever. Yeah. But she could use what she did have more fully than anybody I ever worked with for her advantage. When people ask me, I don't know anything about Marilyn Monroe movies. What should I see? I always say this one first. Gentlemen prefer blondes because everything about her that made her a star is there. It's a dumb blonde role, but she's kind of like underneath it all. She's got some savvy and brains, but she's very delicious She's at the peak of her beauty. She sings. She dances. She's got, in the perfect cohort, she's got Jane Russell, who's the opposite of her, you know, dark and sultry, and Marilyn's light and funny. It's very fresh. It's very delicious. And it's just as entertaining today as it was in 1952 and 1953. By the third of Marilyn's trio of 1953 smashes, How to Marry a Millionaire, in which she received top billing over Betty Grable and Lauren Bacall, of all people, the formerly stuttering foster girl had become the most famous woman in the world. She always wanted to be famous, but she was experiencing the kind of fame that even she couldn't have expected. I mean, I don't think anyone at this point in time had ever been as famous as Marilyn Monroe was. She's really the most famous woman in the world. Not only Andy Warhol drawing her, I mean, she is the great comic actress. The 20th century, she's the female counterpart to Marlon Brando. She was just everywhere. 
you know? And she became like a catchphrase. Like if a woman was walk, walking down the street and, you know, she was haughty or something, the guys would yell out, who do you think you are, Marilyn Monroe? I mean, that's how famous she was. She was the standard to be judged by. It's, it's almost a magic, a kind of charisma that she had. Nobody could quite figure it out. There were stories about how she'd walk down Fifth Avenue feeling depressed and looking dumpy and looking without makeup. And then she would say, do you want me to become the legend that is Marilyn? And they said, sure, Marilyn, let's see if you can do it. And she'd pull off her scarf and she'd put on some smear of lipstick and she'd thrust out her chest and she'd razzle-dazzle her way and suddenly glow with this magic charisma and suddenly people would notice this that's Marilyn and then crowds would form and if she was the most famous woman in the world she was also the most desired here's Danforth Prince again to be seen as arm candy with Marilyn Monroe was one of the highest status symbols a man could possibly have at the time. and Marilyn was thrilling she was charismatic people would meet her once when she was being extroverted and the glamorous beautiful platinum blonde that she was and never ever forget it she was a fabulous status symbol to be seen with. A great conversation piece. Perhaps one of the most unique things about Marilyn's sexuality was how upfront she was about it. She may have been dating Joe DiMaggio at the time, but the rumors of her other love affairs kept the gossip columnists working overtime. Just about every handsome, famous, eligible man in Hollywood, and several who were not eligible, were, shall we say, romantically linked with the star. And Marilyn, it seems, not only did nothing to quell the gossip, but seemed to actually thrive on it. Celebrity biographer Mark Bego. She was Marilyn Monroe. She knew she had a certain power and cachet in Hollywood, and she could do what she wanted. She was her own woman. And I think that that's one of the things that makes her appealing to women as well as a character, is that she was basically in control of her own destiny. She slept with who she wanted to. She had affairs with who she wanted to. She was really kind of ahead of her time. This kind of behavior would have been, was scandalous back then, but it would have been even more scandalous in early Hollywood. But she's really carried that sex symbol role into her personal life, and she knew she had a certain power. Some believe, however, that Marilyn's intense sexuality had its roots in a far darker place, her abused childhood. Bill Burns is an author and Hollywood historian. She was turned into a sexual creature before she was a teenager. That meant psychologically that the only response she had to any stimulation from men was sexual. Couldn't be friendly, couldn't be business. That was her response. She was trained that way when she was a child who was molested. Why was she that way? Because before she even reached puberty, she was being sexually abused. That was her only response. And that was the response she had for the rest of her life. If we look at Marilyn's relationship with men, again, we have to go back to the studio system in the 1940s and 1950s where you had to sleep with a producer if you wanted to get a role. So uh, women were constantly taken advantage of, constantly abused. So her relationship with men was based on what these things were. I mean, she was a kind of toy, a kind of plaything. Among the men who fell into her orbit was British actor Peter Lawford, who in 1954 married Patricia Kennedy, younger sister of ambitious Senator John F. Kennedy. And through Lawford, she met his Rat Pack buddy, Frank Sinatra. 
It's nice to be seen with the Rat Pack. It's nice to be their friend. You get included in better parties. They all knew one another. They were all striving for booking engagements. Because Marilyn didn't have a father figure growing up, she tended to like men who were older than she was, who she could look up to. Marilyn was involved with Sinatra for many years, and he gave her a dog, which she called Muff, after Mafia, of course. Marilyn had enjoyed relationships with powerful and influential men before, and perhaps uniquely called the shots with them. But Sinatra was to introduce her to a whole new world, and a whole new class of powerful and influential men who would prove far harder to control. Frank Sinatra had a very, very complicated, hugely talented man, but always accusations of being associated with the mob. Cal Neva Lodge, the the Las Vegas singing engagements, a murky career, certainly, that. Casinos were always accused of being associated with the mob. Sinatra definitely had mob contacts. That's been very well documented, and that's easy to prove. And then he was involved with the Kennedys as well. I remember that he was going to have John Kennedy come to his place in Palm Springs. So this whole association with these people, of Peter Lawford, of course, being John F. Kennedy's brother-in-law, and being a movie actor who was uh, under contract to the movie studios all throughout from the late 40s through the 50s, 60s, and so on, she was part of this whole mix. As the decade progressed, so did Marilyn's run of box office hits. The seven-year itch in 1955 gave us one of cinema's most famous scenes as Marilyn's white dress was blown upwards by a passing train. The Prince and the Showgirl in 1957 saw her give a critically acclaimed performance opposite Sir Lawrence Olivier. And 1959's Some Like It Hot was later voted the funniest movie in American cinema history. There are people who claim that Marilyn was just a dumb blonde, to use that phrase, that she just had her sexy image to rely on. And there are others who argue that she was absolutely brilliant in knowing how to market this image, that it really was just a facade for the person who lived inside herself. Well, you know, they ask you questions like, well, just an example, what do you wear to bed? Uh, you wear pajama top, the bottoms of the pajamas, or the uh, nightgown, or what kind of... So I said, Chanel number five. Because it, it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I don't want to say nude, you know, but it, it's the truth. Among the light, however, there was shade. And the pressure to be Marilyn Monroe could sometimes feel overpowering. Here's first husband, James Doherty, on the side of Marilyn the public didn't see. But she was a good gal, and she knew how to be tough. She didn't have to put up with that stuff. But Norma Jean was hurt all the time. Always hurt. Always hurt. And she feared him to go out of the house for a while, you know. She was always afraid, and she was timid. She was just a timid person. She was just a, a, a real sweet person that should never have been in that business. She should have been somewhere where somebody could be her husband and take care of her. She was just so sweet to everybody. She never hated anybody. She never would harm anybody. And she was just a good person. 
Perhaps inevitably, Marilyn sought comfort and escape wherever she could. Here's Hollywood historian and biographer Mark Bego. She's someone who did, you know, have fears and insecurities like we all do, but she was so in the spotlight that she wanted to be the best she could be at all times. I mean, she kind of had that Judy Garland syndrome where they would, well, Judy, you're getting a little fat. We'll give you diet pills. Whoops. Okay, you're too high. You can't sleep. We'll put you on downers. And, you know, and that ruined Judy Garland's life. And I think that there was the potential for it ruining Marilyn's life. She seemed to think that she had control over what she was taking. Doctors would give her, you pick me up and also put you to sleep. And she was on that cycle, and it can be a deadly cycle. It still is today sometimes for movie stars. Elvis Presley had this problem, too, is that, well, I'm not a drug addict. These are prescription drugs. I don't have a drug problem. A doctor gave these to me. Well, drugs are drugs. Even alcohol's a drug if you use it that way. It was something that relaxed her, seemed to center her. But if you start taking them with champagne... So poor Marilyn Monroe, she's addicted to methamphetamine. She's also an alcoholic. She's also heavily on barbiturates, which is a deadly combination when you're taking methamphetamines. The 1950s belonged to Marilyn Monroe in a manner and on a scale almost unprecedented in Hollywood history. But as she achieved uncharted levels of worldwide fame, in her private life, things were beginning to unravel. By 1960, Marilyn had less than two years left to live and had developed serious addictions to alcohol and prescription drugs. The childhood traumas that she had fought so hard to escape from were resurfacing, and her chaotic love life was about to put her at the center of a deadly power struggle between forces she had no hope of controlling. Kennedy was very sexually active, so she was having an affair with him, with Frank Sinatra, with people in the Rat Pack, and she became a fixture in Hollywood and in American politics. She is an enduring part of the American legend, a story that only America and maybe Hollywood could have produced. What would the American identity be without her? There are still bars in Pago Pago. You go someplace really obscure in the world and there's a poster of Marilyn Monroe or some bar somewhere. (laughs) In retrospect, her fate has a terrible, tragic inevitability about it. But as Mark Bego speculates, it could have all been so different. It's really interesting to speculate what would happen to a lot of our idols. What would Marilyn be like these days if she were still alive? Would she be as big as we view her? Would she be as iconic as we view her? Would she be making appearances on The Tonight Show? Would she show up on game shows? Would she be someone who lost her beauty and became a has-been? But you look at someone like Jane Russell, who was Marilyn's co-star in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And Jane had a long life. She would show up on television on Turner Classic Movies and different shows. And she was still a beautiful woman, but definitely older. It was an older version of Jane Russell. Would Marilyn fit into that category? Uh, Mamie Van Doren, another bombshell from the 50s. She's around. She shows up every once in a while. She still looks pretty. She's still somewhat a legend, not as big as Marilyn, of course. Would Marilyn be like that? Or would she develop uh, another character for herself? Would she be the wise-cracking older woman? I guess we'll never know exactly what she could have become had she survived. 
in the next episode of The Killing of Marilyn Monroe. All the men that she found attractive because they were powerful were also the enemies of a lot of dark forces on the periphery of that. For example, she got involved with the Kennedys. Who hated the Kennedys? Giancana hated the Kennedys. So by getting to Maryland, it was an open door to anyone who wanted to punish the Kennedys. Well, they just used it like a rag doll. I mean, I mean, I had bars and clubs and places with it. But you could see, I mean, she'd be totally out of it. And they'd walk away for a while and come back. And then somebody else would grab her and walk away and come back, like to the street hooker. That was terrible. But I wasn't in a position to say anything to these guys. I was a young kid. The Killing of Marilyn Monroe is hosted by me, Jackie Moran. Executive produced by Dylan Howard and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavor Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Carrie Budge and written by Dominic Utten. Reporting by Doug Montero. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz and Sam Ada. Scoring by Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to The Killing of Marilyn Monroe wherever you get podcasts. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 